behaved. It's rather heroic. Um, I know that in, in the best of times, really, uh, how much effort it takes to come on retreat, you know, how much rearrangement of your life, how many things to take care of in this country, the, sometimes the struggle to get the time off. In the best of times, it's a challenge. But today, I am absolutely astonished. Um, <laughs> we have a few late arrivals coming tomorrow, but so much appreciation for the effort you made to, to get here today and all of those who, of you who came yesterday um, ahead of the storm. So now we land. Now we land. And I, I mean, it's, it's always so curious to me, you know, we, we all know any of you who are engaged in the development of, of mindfulness probably is very, very aware of the kind of very pivotal role that intention plays and how, you know, all that we do follows on the footsteps of intention or follows on the footsteps of impulse. And so it takes a lot of intention to get here. And there's something about when we arrive to actually appreciate how that almost invites us to kind of renew our acquaintance with intention. Because there's a way of, you know, there's so many different ways of being in this environment. You know, and to be here very intentionally, being aware of what it takes to bring mind, body, heart, present moment together in one place, to have that kind of psychological and emotional arrival, I think is, is really so important. Um, this retreat, it's... It's an important one. This is a, a kind of focused retreat that the, we've been engaged in offering and cultivating and exploring for really a number of years now. And I think there's, it's about a dialogue. It, it's about this dialogue between this kind of quite ancient classical teaching and pathway of liberation rooted in waking up, rooted in mindfulness. And the dialogue between that and the whole kind of explosion and expansion of mindfulness in our contemporary secular world. And this is a really important dialogue. And I, I think one of the reasons why we've given and continue to give quite a bit of energy and quite a bit of attention to this kind of retreat is, you know, appreciating how many of you go out from retreats like this and touch a lot of people in your life with how you, with what you offer, with what you teach, with what you embody. And how recognizing in this dialogue between this classical and these contemporary traditions that everything that happens, in, certainly in contemporary mindfulness world, can really be mapped onto a very classical, a very ancient teaching of awakening. And part of that teaching is, is a kind of cognitive understanding of the process of what goes on inwardly. 
And part of that teaching, of course, is a very embodied teaching. It's a very experiential teaching. And we learn to marry these together. Now, a week is not really a very long period of time, although if you're not familiar with retreats, it might seem like a very long period of time. (laughs) But relatively speaking, this is actually quite a short period of time. Um, But there's a lot we learn in this short period of time. There's a lot we learn about what it means to embody wakefulness, what it means to learn, what it means to investigate, what it means to explore. And I really encourage you to come into this retreat with that kind of openness of attitude, that openness of questioning. It doesn't matter how many years you've practiced, we're still learning, we're still students. We're still students of our own experience, and we're still learning from the Dharma. Now, I recognize quite a few faces in this room, and I want to say a very warm welcome back. And I know often coming back to IMS, it's sort of a feeling of arriving home almost. You know, there's a certain sense of being here which, which has echoes. And for those of you who are new, it can be quite a different experience landing here. I remember teaching a retreat recently, and at the end of it, someone who, it was their first retreat, they said to me, they were sure that everybody else on the retreat knew all of these unwritten rules and etiquette, and they were convinced they were doing everything wrong. (laughs) They were the only ones who were doing everything wrong. Please, this is not a, a kind of a tradition of rules and regulations. Certainly there there are guidelines we agree on about being here. But the most crucial thing is that even if you are new to IMS, that you, you have this feeling of being at home, of being supported. You know, I think in the busiest times of our life, we dream of places like this. You know? People put food on the tables for us. Isn't that amazing? You know, they shop for us. You know, the cleaning gets done. You know, people are here to sort of answer our needs. In the busiest times of our lives, we long for places like this. But given the perversity of the human mind, we quickly forget that at times when we arrive and we think, you know, what on earth am I doing here? You know, I would surely be better off somewhere else. But I would just really encourage you to to sense how... This can be a very dedicated space that we have, in a sense, almost the most ideal conditions to support this being a place of learning, a place of softening, a place of stilling, and a place of deepening. We will have a certain kind of arena of exploration during this retreat. Um, There are two teachings that I think have been Well, are, I don't think they are the most pivotal teachings, not only in the development of insight traditions of meditation, but they're the most, the the two discourses that have most powerfully influenced um, contemporary mindfulness development. Some of you will be familiar with these, some of you won't. The, The first of these is called the Satipatthana Sutta. It's probably the clearest exposition of the ways of developing wakefulness and mindfulness. And Satipatthana actually translates as, it's a discourse on the four ways of establishing mindfulness. 
During this retreat, we're, we're actually going to go through this very, very systematically in the instructions. Um, because it's a sort of logically developmental teaching, actually. Now, the other discourse that has most profoundly influenced meditation practices in the West and, indeed, contemporary mindfulness is the teaching called the Metta Sutta, the teaching of, of boundless friendliness, the teaching of boundless kindness. And in a very many times in, in, in Western traditions, these two discourses have been quite separated. I think in the deepest understanding of both discourses, they're not separated at all. That, you know, this quality of befriending, of kindness, if, if it's not integrated into mindfulness, I don't, I'm not convinced it's mindfulness at all. Um, if mindfulness is not really being cultivated within the, cultiv- the pathway of boundless befriending kindness, I doubt that it's kindness and befriending. So we will also be exploring both in formal practices and in some teaching what this teaching of of befriending, um, how we understand it and how we bring these two together. Um, So we have a lot of ground that we would like to cover during this week. Um, And actually we're pretty confident we can do that. We're fairly sure. Um, but I think at the moment, I, I, I would ask you to begin this retreat just with two questions to consider. What would it be helpful for you to, to put down to allow yourself to be here most fully? It might be domains of habit or judgment or agitation. What would it be helpful for you to, to put down to be here most wholeheartedly? And the second question kind of goes along with this is, what would it be helpful for you to cultivate to be here most wholeheartedly? It might be an attitude of befriending. It might be perseverance. It might be patience. It might be spaciousness. But what would be helpful for you to cultivate? And these are, you're not going to report back into anybody, you know. There's no right answer to these questions. But I, I personally think that they're kind of very useful reflections for arriving on retreat. So I, we will get to meet you all during this week, but I really do wish you a, a joyful and a rich week here. It's a real pleasure to welcome each of you onto this retreat. And it's a precious time we have together in this uh, beautiful space. It's my first time here at IMS and I'm really struck by what a lovely setting we have for our time together and just how much kindness and generosity is supporting what we're doing. So I really hope as you arrive and settle, you can bask in this uh, place of goodness and uh, safety and uh, awakening. And it does 
it does take a change of mode, as Christina says, doesn't it? You know, because our daily lives are so often characterized by, by a certain sense of doing and drivenness and to-do lists and should-have-done lists. And uh, I'm guessing that getting here today was a, or yesterday indeed, was a, a bit of a mission. Um, and, you know, it's, it takes quite a, a conscious um, decision to change gear, to shift, to simplify into a mode that is more characterized by resting and opening and being. And it helps to slow down, as, as those of you who've been on retreat before will know, it really helps to slow down and to know that for the next week you won't have to hurry anywhere, which is great, isn't it? And also for the next week, there's just a precious opportunity just to do one thing at a time. You know, rather than our usual tendency to try to multitask, the invitation is to practice single tasking here, you know, which is challenging. But it takes, as Christina said, that sense of intention, that sense of simplifying, that sense of choosing to be here for this right now. And the body is such a support in this, isn't it? You know, even as you sit here now, just we can notice how just to begin to give attention to the body, to soak the body in a kindly awareness that really receives the feeling of sitting that really receives this breath that you're breathing right now. It really supports this steadying and gathering and resting and opening and inquiring. This embodied mindfulness, this embodied presence, really is the meditator's craft. It's the invitation of our practice together this week. And so letting your senses open to being here. Well support a sense of nourishment, support a sense of waking up. And of course one of the experiences that our senses encounter when we do this is the silence, which is so precious in our lives, isn't it? To have this quality of silence, this depth of silence, deepened by the snow. Huh? Do you notice that today? Just how much the silence uh, 
feels spacious and rich and inviting here. And it's a practice, you know, how to give ourselves a break, how to turn down the volume on the verbal aspect of experience and come to dwell more in the awareness that is prior to speech and to thought. And really too, as Christina says, have that sense of intention about this and support your sense of intention. And, you know, we, at the beginning of retreats, we always make a a really heartfelt request to switch off your phone. Switch off your phone and it's a great support that is offered here that you can hand in your phone and it'll be locked in a safe and kept safe. Because uh, the most effective way of undermining your retreat, one of the most effective ways is to be engaged in text, texting and checking and all those compulsions that keep us dislocated, keep us fragmented. So really, please, out of kindness to yourself and to everybody, <laughs> switch off the phone. Don't use it as an alarm clock. There's a pile of alarm clocks there for you. You know, Just as a gift to yourself, it's... It's uh, the pressures are so intense to keep checking, aren't they, in daily life? And this is just a very precious time, really, to put that down. And really to look at, you know, can we put down all the ways in which we feed the verbal, you know, whether that's compulsive reading of notice boards or tea packets or... Uh, <laughs> books or or even taking notes which I think Marilyn spoke about but you know I know how that can become a bit of a compulsion can't it and one of the reasons why the instructions and the talks are all going to be recorded is to save you from you know having to do that of course it's fine to to take the old note but really you know that this this form of retreat will be so much more effective if we can quieten the verbal aspect of our experience and of course, part of the way that's supported here is is uh, the invitation just to give each other silence and space, and so the request not to to send notes to each other, you know, or or to speak to each other. Um, you know, the the our associations with silence. Sometimes we can have historic associations with silence where it feels a bit sort of punitive or it feels a bit isolating. And, but really to practice the, the, the reminder to yourself that this is a friendly silence <laughs> through which we're swimming this week, you know, together. This is a friendly, welcoming, resourcing, nourishing silence. And such a precious, uh, again, back to this word precious, because it does feel so, um, it feels like a sanctuary here, doesn't it? You know, and... Uh, the 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 sense of solitude in community, that sense that we're supporting each other, we're co-creating this by our sense of community this week. And part of how we're doing that is honoring our own and other people's solitude and quietude. Really invite us all to, to practice that. You know, for millennia, people have 
have gone on retreat to have a chance to inquire in a more wholehearted way into the truth of things or to honor the heart's deeper callings to practice living with greater simplicity and wisdom and compassion. And silence is is a real support in that. It's something to turn to and to receive as a gift, to soak in, (laughs) to be nourished by, knowing that it can hold everything. So really wish you a a nourishing and uh, enjoyable time here. Okay, third on the list. (laughs) It's wonderful to see you all here um, and knowing how difficult it has been to get here as well, given the weather. So it's fantastic to see you all here. And given those difficulties of getting here, often creating the time, often creating the space, um, the journeys you had and everything else, I just want to kind of reiterate something that both Christine and Chris have said so far, which is, Make the use of this gift you've given yourself. Yeah? You've given yourself, I don't want to kind of overuse this word, but I mean, you've given yourself a precious gift and we can squander it quite easily. Um, so I'd be careful about doing that and try to make the most of what you're doing by kind of looking at a lot of our behaviors and particularly the ones in relationships and the things that Chris has just mentioned, you know, compulsions. Um, This is a good place to come and examine your compulsions. It really is. In many senses, that's one of the meanings of retreat, isn't it? We come on retreat. Well, what does retreat mean? It means often dropping, letting go of the stuff that we don't do normally. But do we actually let go of them? That's the question, isn't it? Do we actually let go of those things? Because often we find this still there. Yeah. Yeah, the compulsion, as Chris just said, you know, the compulsion to keep on reading. It's a real compulsion. Um, so this is a good place. And one of the things, just before I move on to what I really want to talk about here, is uh, in using this, this gift you've given yourself, uh, come to view this room. I often say this, but I come to view this room as a laboratory. Yeah? And you engage in experiments in here. Um, the experiment is called you. You, know, you experiment in doing certain things, in focusing the mind, calming the mind, um, the various instructions you'll be offered over the course of this week. You know, this is a good place to experiment. And what do all experiments really, um, where, what do they utilize in terms of our energies? Well, you know, good experiments utilize something that I think is really stressed in our secular-based mindfulness approaches which is things like interest and curiosity. Be really curious about what's going on for you, even when it feels unpleasant. You know, you can kind of inquire into why does it feel unpleasant? Because as Christina rightfully said, you know, here's everything being provided for you. You know, and there I would be in my mental state, often wanting to be back in the supermarket, you know, or wherever. 
you know, shopping or doing the normal stuff, but you're not, you're here. And so it's, in a sense, it highlights all of those things. And be curious about it. Be really interested in what's going on here. And in terms of those experiments, um, we have a kind of list that we often use at the start of retreats, which is, sounds a bit formidable. It's called the precepts. And often these are given just as a list of things that we shouldn't do as we come on retreat. Again, I would like to change the emphasis of that. It's not kind of a list that we just shouldn't do. I mean, in a sense, that's the default option that we have for all these. But it's a really a way and a process of beginning to inquire into our ethical, moral values without actually being prescriptive about it. So they become questions rather than thou shalt nots. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, so we're being asked to look at things in a way um, which really is looking at our moral and ethical lives and some of the values that we hold. They're a way of supporting the retreat. I mean, that goes without saying. This is kind of one of the containers that we use for holding the retreat. And actually holding a sense of security and safeness between you all as you dwell here for this week together, engaging in your experiments, having made that difficult journey to get here and all the things I've said so far. Uh, as I say, these are called precepts, and it sounds a bit daunting, but they're not. Um, if you enter the monastic traditions, I, I spent some time in monastic traditions, um, you get kind of a lot of rules to live by, like 227 of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, for lay people in the Buddhist tradition, this gets boiled down to five. <laughs> yeah, but in a sense, these are the five most important ones. And as I say, they become sources of inquiry. And so when you hear them, I'm going to put the first one in the full form that it comes up. Um, we have this, this, this training rule which says, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Now, quite often in popular books on Buddhism, sometimes even on retreat, you'll get this just listed very boldly as don't kill. You know, not even the creepy crawlies. Don't kill. Yeah. Uh, but I hope when you hear me say it in its full form, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings, um, that it actually says a lot more. Yeah. It says a great deal more than just don't kill. Because obviously killing, your know, abstinence from killing or refrain from killing anything, even if it is, as I say, the creepy crawly, um, is implied in that. It says a lot, lot more, which is all of your relationships of harm, the ways that we can do harm, including to yourself, yeah, and some of the attitudes that we take towards ourselves and some of the things that we do to ourselves. You know, so it's actually beginning, this is a space and an opportunity even to begin to examine what I call these really fundamental aspects of living. Because I, you know, I personally feel hand on heart that often we move through life, sometimes inadvertently, sometimes deliberately, actually engaging in relationships of harm. Yeah. A, lot of it's a lot of it is very inadvertent, unawareness, lacking mindfulness. When we start to bring mindfulness to any of these five precepts, then we bring attitudes which actually, send, in a sense, shine a spotlight on what we're doing. 
you know, opening it up in some degree, hopefully, of clarity to what is actually going on for us. You know, and in our experiment, which is us, that's one of the questions for our week, is what's going on. What's actually happening here, now? Not would I, what not would I like to happen, but what is actually happening for me? What's going on for you right now? You know, how is this breath? How is this body? How is this mind? You know, we'll cover all of these things in this week. You know, and that's that sense of curiosity. But aligned to that curiosity is also what relationships of harm am I engaging? Even, even if the answer is I'm not actually engaging in anything harmful at this moment, fine. But it highlights it, doesn't it? It highlights this as a question for us, a really, really important question. The second of the precepts really opens up um, our relations in, 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 in bringing us into relationship with things which are you know, either offered or not offered to us. Now, this again gets stated. I'll give you the full form, actually. I'll, I'll give you the whole, the whole thing. But normally, again, in these kind of little lists that we get, in, as I say, popular books on Buddhism, we often see this listed as don't steal. Yeah, again, this does a great disservice because actually the, the precept itself runs, undertake a rule of training. It's really important. It's a training rule. It's actually beginning to open up something. It's not saying, don't. It's saying, engage in a something, in something which is training you in a way to look more carefully. This training rule says, undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking what is not offered. Yeah. Now, we engage in all sorts of appropriations, don't we? Some of them can be stealing. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps we actually, in our lives, don't do that. and We actually make a point of not doing that. But we still might engage in acts of appropriation where something is not given freely. Yeah. I, mean, I can think of work, time, where you take a little bit of time out to do what you want to do, deal with your own emails or whatever it might be, the paperclip the phone call, stuff that actually has nothing to do with your work. And I'm just giving these as examples. This is not meant to be sort of categorical. This is things we shouldn't do. But it's there for inquiry there. We often take people's time. Yeah? Yeah. I'm sure we've all had the experience of being pinned to a wall, somebody talking at us um, at some point in time. What they're taking is your time. They're taking your energy. And we can do that to others as well. So it's making us aware of what we can do, the ways that we take without it being freely offered. As I usually remind my students often, uh, you know, when I'm teaching in universities, um, often what students do is they take other people's ideas and words <laughs> and appropriate them without them being offered. So there's many different levels, I hope you hear me saying this, in which we can appropriate what is not being offered to us. And again, this becomes a lovely space for us to be able to look at that, what goes on for us in that, in that kind of really basic relationship, um, because it's about our interrelationship as well. The third one, and the way this one gets translated usually in the extremely short form, says a lot more about the West than it does about the original precept, which is usually about not engaging in sexual misconduct. Um, actually, what they miss out is the very important part of this, which is actually I undertake a rule of training to refrain from sexual and sensual misconduct. Yeah. Um, obviously, sexuality is part of sensuality. 
And so the emphasis is actually on sensuality, but sexuality being an expression of that. And you know, again, we might not come on retreat with any ideas of you know, sexual um, inappropriate relationships or anything like that, and not even want to go there. But it doesn't mean we don't engage in sensual misconduct. You know, that compulsion to keep on reading, that can be sensual. The compulsion, perhaps, even just the sense of it going on for you, of being deprived from your stimuli, you know, the media, you know, your iPods, um, your phones. These are all about sensual. Now, you're in a situation where things get stripped away from you. I hope you've probably gained that, gathered that by now, haven't you? That uh, you get a lot of stuff taken away from you. you know, you're asked not to engage in, or at least to examine um, things we engage in. Um, so things are pared down to the minimum here. The simplicity which Chris spoke about is very, very important to what we engage in. So certain times of the day become really important and they become sites of what I call sensual misconduct. These are called food times. <laughs> yeah. These become really, really important. In fact, retreats can actually become something like it's an eating retreat interrupted by meditation. <laughs> Particularly when uh, the food is provided for you <laughs> and you don't have to provide it for yourself. So again, it's not a don't, it's look. Look at the ways that our sensuality can find other modes of expression. Christina has a lovely phrase that she uses about the hungry senses. Yeah. It's not just our stomachs that are hungry. It's our senses which are hungry, aren't they? You know, our eyes and our ears, our noses and everything is looking, in a sense, to be stimulated. Come on, come on world, give me some stimulation in some way. Um, so this is a really, really important one. The next one, it's usually don't tell lies. That's the kind of really simplified version of this. However, it's a little more complex, as you probably gathered from what I've said about the other ones here. Um, it's to undertake a rule of training to refrain from false speech. Yeah. Now, obviously that says don't lie. Now, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we just asked you to be silent. But have you noticed, actually, you don't stop talking? You know, even if you're not actually audibly saying things, you're always talking, aren't you? One German philosopher says you're always talking. In every situation, you're talking. You know, you're talking when you're silent. You're talking when you're reading. And you even talk when you go to sleep. You know, there's always chatter going on. This is actually a wonderful space, again, to examine the quality of that speech, those speech acts which are going on. Uh, and actually meditation, as you know, particularly those who are involved in the mindfulness world, you know, this is not about stopping thought. Yeah. It's not about obliterating our, you know, our speech acts in our minds. Uh, it's not about creating blank minds or anything like that. So we want to really look at the quality of what's going on in terms of our speech. Just watch it. Again, it's a nice experiment, isn't it? to see what's going on. Often this gets extended, this particular, um, this particular precept, into covering actually different ranges of speech. So it gets extended into not just false speech, but to undertake a rule of training to refrain from harsh speech. Yeah. 
Now, we can be really harsh, can't we? Even in a situation of silence, the judgments we make on others. The judgments we make on ourselves, that's a really big one. You know, the way we beat ourselves up, that critical mind, which we'll talk a lot more about as we go through the week. You know, this is really important. So it's looking at that going on. Not then to add in another critical mind that says, you know, there I am badly engaging in harsh speech and I've got aversion to the harsh speech as well. Uh, but just to watch it, to see what's going on. To, to look at the qualities of divisive speech, you know, oppositional, you know, creating oppositions. You know, oh, this person's doing it fine, that person's not. You know, they're a good meditator, they're not. I'm a lousy meditator. You know, all of these judgments that we're making, which are actually divisive forms of speech. And then, we, of course, we have just idle chatter. The stuff that goes on, you know, just goes on around and round and round, doesn't it? You know, when the first moment you get when you sit to do engage in meditation is to watch that idle chatter a lot of it. Just the stuff that's going on. You know, no particular direction, no particular thought patterns. It's just speech going on. And we get a chance to watch that. So actually when we come into this relationship with the precept, about false speech, all these other forms unfold and we begin to be able to examine those even in silence, even when nothing is audibly emitted from your mouths. So it's really, really, it's a very, it's a really good opportunity again to have a look at what's going on there. And finally, at the bottom end of it, we have this precept against taking um, basically substances which uh, disturb the balance of the mind. Now, in the original language that these are couched in, uh, the actual words mention things like strong drink. They don't have the kind of recreational drugs um, that we have. This is nothing to do with prescription drugs or anything like that, but it's taking things which deliberately disturb the balance of the mind. Now, why does this come about? And I would just say very simply that I don't think it's because this character who we call the Buddha, you know, the kind of fount of the tradition from which we teach here, um, is a prude. He's not a killjoy. You know, the reason is that we encourage you, as coming on retreat, to engage in this thing which is called cultivation or just more commonly these days as meditation. You know, we engage it, and that requires us to start clarifying what's going on for ourselves, clarifying our minds, bringing some clarity of perception to what is actually happening. And the Buddha's, in a sense, getting us to look at our relationship with anything that disturbs, any substance which disturbs the balance of the mind is actually asking yourself the question is if these practices that we engage in, you know, for a lot of you know, a lot of the time during the day, um, and hopefully if you have a home practice as well, you will engage in that home, is actually going in one direction, whereas taking substances goes in another direction. You know, it's actually like they're pulling in two different directions. You know? Now again, it's not an absolute thou shalt not. This is not a kind of these five precepts. This is not a reduced Ten Commandments. <laughs> you know, a simplified version of it. Um, it's actually getting us to look at our relationship and to look at those tensions you know, where we find things pulling in opposite directions. And so this is what's important about that particular precept. So we have these five precepts. Line them up one by one. There's another good compelling reason why we don't engage in the last one because if you have them stacked up, 
one on top of the other, going from you know, harm all the way down to the bottom one. Well, if you engage in the latter one, in the last one, then you might have a tendency to commit all of the above. <laughs> it becomes a lot easier, doesn't it? Here. And that's the reason why we have these. So these precepts, please do not hear them um, as thou shalt not. They become tools for inquiry, for examination, become ways of holding the retreat, and they will become also ways, when we begin to engage in this inquiry, of supporting and holding us all in a very safe place for these days that we're together. Okay, thank you. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah, okay. (laughs) I also would like to really extend my warm welcome to all of you. You may notice that I'm speaking in a little bit a different language. I'm from Switzerland, so please uh, um, be patient if I don't find the words. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Um, having been here before as a yogi, it's just so nice to come home to this place and to be with those teachers. And I'd also like just to appreciate the fact of all of you coming here, putting all the time in that is necessary, all the efforts that were necessary to really dedicate yourself, to dedicate your time to this practice. Um, Myself, I find that when I'm off retreat, usually my mind goes lamenting, oh, I would like to be on retreat, and when can I go to the next retreat? And then when I'm actually on retreat, then I realize how difficult it is to really let go of all the busyness, all the habits that we have already heard about. And I would, I would like just to offer some thoughts that can remind us of the preciousness of this situation that we find ourselves right now in this moment. Um, for instance, in terms of rarity, just the fact that there are so few people in this world who have the possibility in terms of material conditions, finances, you know, to sit in such a nice warm hall, to have enough food, then of course all the conditions like meeting this practice of mindfulness, of dharma, um, the fact that we are being held in this beautiful well-designed space in this retreat center. I cannot imagine of places which are more conducive to this kind of practice that we are doing. Um, Thinking of all the people at home taking care of our children or pets or parents or work duties. Um, There is so much generosity flowing towards us and we can just take that in, that we are just receiving, receiving so much. You know, also what the people are doing here, uh, the staff at the IMS, already long time before this retreat started, they started to prepare, um, organize this whole retreat. Maybe that increases our joy and r- helps us to really rejoice in the fact that we do have this possibility to be here. We can also 
think of the preciousness in terms of the impermanence of this situation. We have come here together in this constellation and it might seem like a long stretch of time, seven days, but usually that, that time passes so quickly. The first few days one thinks, oh my God, how long is that going to take? And then suddenly the, the retreat is gone and we will never come together in this kind of constellation. So it's really a unique um, opportunity. And a third aspect, I think, just in terms of the opportunity that is given to us here to receive teachings that are not just about how to live a more successful life or increase our self-esteem, but which really speak to the most existential concerns of us as human beings. Um, yeah, how great just to be able to be in such a place, to receive such teachings and to be in a space where we, we can actually put these teachings into practice. So we have the conditions, we have the Sangha, we have all the people sharing the same longing, supporting us. Um, it's really a chance. So perhaps, yeah, just reflecting on these things, it can help us to feel a sense of gratitude or um, appreciation. And maybe also really it can help us to... Um, form this intention to make the best use of the time that we have together. So, thank you. Okay, so I am very aware that many of you are probably feeling somewhat tired. I know for us it's about two in the morning our time. Um, uh, so would like to just suggest that we, we end the evening just with a very short sitting period. But if, you, if it's helpful for you just to take a moment to stand up and have a stretch first, please do that. In the beginning of every sitting, it's, I think, really important to develop this sense of befriending your body. But it means to turn your, your attention to the body, to how you're sitting, and really to feel what it is to inhabit your body. For mind, body, to be in the same present moment, held within the same moment of awareness, of wakefulness. So just to sense yourself 
sense the body sitting, how you touch the ground. How you sense the touch of the air in your clothing, on your skin. How you sense the quietude and the sounds. arrive fully this moment, this embodied moment. Mindful of the life of your body just now. The aliveness of the changing sensations throughout your body. And finding in your posture that marriage of alertness and softness uprightness, a sense of ease, and posture of some dignity, of wakefulness. Sensing the body breathing, feeling that movement of an in-breath, an out-breath, moment-to-moment process. Quite intentionally, Gathering, collecting your attention to establish an anchor of mindfulness in the body, the body breathing.
simply allowing the thoughts, the narratives, to sit in the background of your attention. And to bring into the foreground mindfulness of the body, body breathing in this moment. So hopefully you will have all noticed the posted schedule for tomorrow. We don't have a pre-breakfast sitting tomorrow, so hopefully it gives you a chance to get a reasonable night's rest tonight. Uh, Not that we wouldn't hope for you that every night, but um, tonight it's a little bit of a longer one. Um, So the breakfast is followed by... work period and then the sitting and instructions it'll be period offered every morning what what i would really encourage you is 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 to allow yourself now to to really arrive and you don't have to go super slow but neither do you have to be in a hurry to get anywhere and to to have begin to have a sense of in a way the simplicity of this practice you know the simplicity of this path what it means actually to, to follow through on that invitation to be an embodied human being, to actually inhabit the body, and how easily that gets forgotten. And yet that the most simple of invitations actually is really the beginning of the path of mindfulness and the beginning of the path of waking up. So to allow yourself to slow down, to remember to be here, to remember to come back to the body and we will see you in the morning and hope you rest well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.